0: You're listening to the SSPX Podcast. This is a series of conferences given by Father Thomas Asher of the Society of St. Pius X on the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to be seen as a private retreat, a retreat that you can do while you're sheltering in place or at your house, perhaps with some extra time. For more conferences, resources, such as downloadable uh, instructions and information about Holy Week, as well as live mass times, please visit corona.sspx.online. Or for all of our conferences, please visit sspxpodcast.com. Now here's Father Asher. meditation we're going to be contemplating the last seven words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to find these last seven words we have to go to all four Gospels, or we will be going to all four Gospels. We find some of the words in one Gospel that are not found in another, and and taking them all together we have um, our Lord's last Testament, so to speak. And before we begin, let us um, all agree that a person's dying words um, they carry an import, or a weight, or an importance um, far beyond their normal everyday language. We can imagine a soldier dying on the battlefield and confiding to his, his comrade that is there next to him. You know, maybe he says something like, you know, tell my parents I did my duty, or tell my wife I loved her, or ask my wife to tell my children who I was, don't let them forgive me. We might imagine, too, a man dying in his bed and calling his children to his bedside, in order to impart to them some last bit of wisdom. In all of these various cases, the person that is dying is, is expressing what is nearest and dearest to their heart. And so too, as we said, these last words of our Lord, which cost him a great deal to utter. Remember that normally when a person is crucified, they die by suffocation. They aren't able to breathe, you know, take a deep breath and their lungs slowly fill with liquid and they end up drowning after, after a few days. Now, for our Lord to speak these words or even to breathe, he had to pull up on the nails that were piercing his, his hands, and he had to push up on the nails that had pierced his feet. Now, these last seven words are the following. First, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then, and may I say to you, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then, woman, behold thy son, And then, of course, turning to the disciple, behold thy mother. Next, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Later, then, he will say, I thirst. And later again, it is consummated. And finally, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The first of these words we find only in Luke's gospel. It's Luke chapter 23, verse 34, and we're going to read as well, 35. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But they, dividing his garments, cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the elect of God. And so, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, based on the context, it seems most commentators tell us that these words were spoken in the midst of a general silence when all that could be heard was the pounding of the hammers against the nails, these nails tearing through our Lord's flesh and into the wood. And this is the cry that's provoked from the heart of mercy, goodness, and love. I always like to point out on retreat, if you look at your hand where your hand meets your wrist or there at your wrist, we see some creases or lines, and then, of course, if you look uh, closely, you see one line, you know, stretching up into the palm of the hand, and on the opposite side, another one, and it forms a sort of triangle there at the base of the hand. And if we put our thumb on that you know, triangle and put our, our finger, middle finger, index finger on the back of our wrist and squeeze, we feel a kind of indentation. And this triangle designates the spot where the Roman executioners would have placed the nail when fastening the condemned to the cross. We see evidence of this in the case of our Lord on the Shroud of Turin. And this is the exact spot through which the median nerve passes. The median nerve is the nerve that carries all the information picked up by the various nerve endings in the hand, carries that information up to the brain. Now, I always like to say, imagine the last time that you received a paper cut. And recall how painful that was. Now, the reason it is so painful is because when our, when our skin is broken or, or compromised, you know, by that, by that small cut, a, n- a single nerve ending is exposed and that nerve is being touched directly and not picking up data then through the, the protective coating of our skin, but being acted upon or touched directly, it, it causes a great deal of pain. And so when our Lord is being nailed to the cross, imagine not a single nerve ending being cut, you know, touched. But imagine this rough wrought iron nail that, you know, feels, if you were to rub the nail, it would feel almost like a sandpaper, a fine sandpaper, a medium sandpaper. And imagine that nail ripping through not just one nerve, but a whole bundle of nerves. Doctors describe um the pain that would be felt in, in such a situation as a fiery bolt of pain that would just like almost like an electrical jolt, this hot, fiery pain that would just rack the whole body. In fact, we would call it an excruciating pain. And the the term excruciating, it comes from the Latin excruci, so from the cross. And so it's interesting that our benchmark for pain, so to speak, is the pain that is endured in a crucifixion. And while our, our Lord is enduring this pain, he is even at that moment when men are executing him, killing him, committing the, the greatest crime that has ever been committed in the, in the history of the world, he's still pleading on their behalf. Remember that our Lord is our advocate. He's our defense attorney, so to speak, with the Father. He's the one that is interceding for us. And, of course, our Lord prays for the the Roman soldiers, you know, the, the material executioners. These Roman soldiers, they really, truly didn't know what they were doing. They were carrying out their orders. They were executing these criminals as they understood it. But our Lord prays as well for the formal authors of the crime. So the high priest and sinners down through the ages whose ignorance was culpable. And so for, for you and I in our life, how many times have we been faced with a choice and maybe something in us told us, you know, I probably shouldn't do this. This is probably a sin. And then our reasoning process said, well, you know what? I'm not going to ask because then, you know, uh, if it turns out to be a sin, well, I can claim that I didn't know. That kind of ignorance is voluntary ignorance. It's culpable ignorance, and it's not something that will excuse us from sin, If we really, truly, you know, have serious concerns or serious uh, belief, you know, that this is a sin, well, then we are not permitted to act until we clarify or dispel that doubt. Now, another thing we might comment on is the fact that, again, our Lord being the advocate of men, he pleads on their behalf, and as I said, he uses the only defense, which is ignorance. He makes excuses, so to speak, for those who are wronging him. And I would ask, do we do that? When we are wronged or we perceive that we are being wronged, do we make excuses for our neighbor? Remember, you know, that charity thinks no evil. We should, I mean, our natural inclination as Christians should be to give our neighbor the benefit of the doubt rather than, again, to to be overly sensitive and try and read into the actions of everyone else. Some sort of a deliberate attempt to hurt us. Do I make excuses for my neighbor or do I automatically assume the worst of him? I remember one time I was, this is actually when I was in the seminary and I had been wronged by my neighbor, by one of my fellow seminarians. And of course, I was complaining to my spiritual director about this wrong I'd received. And he reminded me that, you know, we are. Um, We're told by God that we should forgive our neighbor. We should do good to those who persecute us and bless those who curse us. And so he said, we really, we, we have to assume that they didn't mean to hurt us. And then he went on to say, and even if we know for sure that this person intended to hurt us, he intended to humiliate me or shame me or uh, upset me or anger me or whatever. He did it intentionally. Even if that's the case, he said, we can still give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well... They probably didn't mean to hurt me as badly as they did. Our Lord has commanded us to forgive our enemies, and he knows that this is a difficult precept to fulfill, knowing that we are usually prey to to anger and revenge and contempt. And so he doesn't just tell us to do it. He doesn't just give us the commandment, but he leads by example. He goes and treads the path that he's asking us to follow. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, the second word, this is Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verse 39 to 43. And one of those robbers who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Neither dost thou fear God, seeing that thou art condemned under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done no evil. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou shalt come into thy kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Amen, I say to thee, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now here we have an interesting, uh, an interesting dilemma because it seems by reading some of the other evangelists that in fact both uh, of the thieves crucified with our Lord were blaspheming him, that they both cursed him. And yet we see here in Luke's gospel that one of them, one of them has a change of heart. And so the question has been asked, um, why does Dismas convert? And one um, commentator speculates that Dismas converts because he's contemplated Christ. I always tell uh, retreatants that, you know, Dismas has done in the last 24 hours what you've been doing here on retreat for the last several days. You've contemplated Christ. Remember, he was in prison with him. He would have seen the way that our Lord behaved. He would have seen the way that he was silent on the, in the face of false accusations. He would have seen the way that he endured the, the, the scourge uh, without crying out. He would have seen the way that he embraced the cross and seen the way that he carried the cross. He would have heard this first word of forgiveness from the mouth of our Lord and having done that, having contemplated our Lord, his soul is open to grace, which now leads to perfect contrition and love. I love dearly St. Dismas. He, uh, he's a great example for us all. And we see how his conversion actually makes him even a kind of apostle. You notice that in the in the verses we read because he tries to convert his accomplice in crime. Remember, okay, they were both criminals. They both apparently at the start must've been blaspheming our Lord. And yet once he converts, he tries to, to make him change. You know, do you not fear God? You know, this 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 man has done nothing. We are only receiving the, uh, the just punishment for our crimes. You know, Dismas hanging there on the cross, he goes to confession. He publicly, you know, admits his guilt and admits that his punishment is just. Notice that he doesn't ask to be delivered from the cross. Remember prior to this, the the thieves had been had been saying, you know, if if you be the Christ, save yourself and save us. Dismas recognizes that we are getting what we deserve and this is just. He doesn't ask to be delivered from his sufferings or delivered from the cross. And here I like to remind people, you know, let us beware of quote unquote friends who tell us to get down off of our cross, those who say, well, you know, you you don't deserve this, or that person shouldn't have spoken to you that way, or, you know, you need to dump this individual or whatever. And it's, you know, only our Lord's enemies tried to dissuade him from the cross. Remember Peter even, who said, you know, I'm not going to let you die. And our Lord calls him Satan, the high priest, the scribes. They're saying, oh, come down from your cross and we'll believe. The Roman soldiers come down. If you're if you're the king, you know. Or if you're the Messiah, if you're if you're what you say you are, save yourself. And the and the, the again the the bad thief saying, get off your cross. This is not the mind of God. And so let us be very wary about. You know, obviously we have a friend that's suffering. We're trying to comfort them. We're trying to help them bear their cross. Let us be very careful about the advice we give them. Now notice that our Lord answers Dismas immediately and generously. This is a great motive of confidence for us, and it's a beautiful, a beautiful uh, promise, you know, from our Lord. You know, this this man was a criminal all of his life, and yet in the end, as one of the fathers of the church says, he steals heaven. So he re- he remains a criminal at the end because in the end, he steals heaven. Now, there's one other thing that I always point out here, and it's a something of a. A terrifying message, I would say, from this last word. And that is simply that the other thief, at the same distance, having had the same opportunity and seen the same Christ, he does not convert. And this should be a a lesson of caution to us. It isn't, as we've said before, it isn't just because I say the rosary, or I go to the Latin Mass, or I do anything else in my life that I'm going to be saved. I can have all those means. And yet, if they if they don't penetrate me, if they don't open my soul to grace, as, as we said in the case of Dismas, then they're going to profit me little. Now, the third word, woman, behold thy son. This is found in John's gospel, obviously. Um, chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore had seen his mother and the disciples standing whom he loved, he saith to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. After that he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own. Now here I would say the first lesson is one of filial piety. Our Lord Jesus Christ has loved and cared for his mother since the death of St. Joseph. And now that the mission of redemption demands that he be separated from her, he looks for a replacement and he finds it in this loving, faithful virgin, St. John. Remember that St. John, by this point, he's probably 18 years old. The the commentators tell us that he was probably around 15 when he left um, the nets of his father's uh, boat. In order to follow our Lord, and so he is not married. He is unlike some of the other apostles who who were married, who did have wives. Um, Saint John is a virgin, and we're certainly taught by that that it is by virginity, or you know, purity, or at the very least, chastity, according to our, our state in life, that we are made um, fit children for so pure a mother. We also have in in these uh, this word of our Lord. Um, His great love for mankind, because it is by these words that our Lord declares the universal maternity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It is by these words that Mary was made our mother, truly. Now, to understand this correctly, we have to go back to St. Thomas Aquinas. And in his uh, Summa, he gives a principle when speaking of our Lord, um, speaking of God. And the principle is that the words of God effect what they signify. Now, when you and I speak, in order for our words to be true, the words we speak have to match the reality that is outside of us that we're speaking about. Right now, I'm holding these retreat notes in in my hand. And if I were to speak and say, the thing I'm holding in my hand is made of paper, well, that's true. All right. On the other hand, if I were to say the thing I hold in my hand, remember, they're my retreat notes is made of metal, well, that would be false. Because again, the word that I speak, what those words represent does not match the reality that I hold in my hand. Now, when God spoke at the beginning of time, remember, he said, let there be light. And of course, light was created. He said, let the dry land appear. And and it did. He said, let the waters be divided. and And, and they were. And when God became man through the incarnation, he said, be thou opened. And the the deaf man could hear. He said, take up thy pallet and walk. And the man was healed. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus lived again. He said, this is my body. And even though it looks like bread, it is now his body. And again, this is my blood. And the the reality was created that what looked like wine was really, truly, substantially his body, blood, soul, and divinity. God's words match reality, but not in the same way that my words or your words match reality. Our words have to be conformed to the reality outside of us. God's words create reality. And so when our Lord said, woman, behold thy son, At that moment, in the heart of our Blessed Mother, there was created a real, true maternal bond with St. John. And turning to the disciple he loved, he said, Behold thy mother. And there, in the heart of St. John at that moment, and in the heart of everyone whom John represented, there was created this real, true, filial bond with the Blessed Virgin Mary. Remember the night before that John had been ordained a priest. And so now standing there at the foot of the cross, standing at the altar of sacrifice, essentially, he represents each and every one of us who are members of Christ. And we see this played out that every true Christian has a great love and devotion to his his mother in heaven. We have a heavenly father. We have a heavenly mother to whom we owe so much, and whose care for us is even greater than the care that my own biological mother would have for me. When you speak about the Blessed Virgin Mary, when you call her your Blessed Mother, she really, truly is your mother. It isn't simply a term of affection, but it is a reality, a reality created by God. Now here I'd like to go back to the time of the presentation and recall that Simeon said that a sword of sorrow would pierce our blessed mother's heart and i want to propose that it was here that that sorrow pierced her normally when a woman is you know becomes a mother when she gives birth there is a great a great deal of pain in in delivering the child now our lady had escaped the labor pains bringing our lord into the world because she was not subject to original sin but in becoming our mother on calvary the pains that she endured were were far beyond what what any human mother may have endured bringing us into the world, and I say that it was a great deal of pain bound up in this because look at look at what it does to the heart of our Lord when He finally lets her go, when He finally shares her with us. We see him cry out, "My God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? We see our Lord's heart plunged into desolation when he when he lets go of his mother, so to speak, when he pushes her away. And you can imagine how, I mean, our Lord is effectively telling our lady, look, I I can't stay. Do do you want a son there? There, there's your son, go. You can imagine how much that must have wounded the heart of our lady. And we see what it did to our Lord. The fourth word then, this is found in Mark's gospel, taken from Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 34 to 37. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of the standers by hearing said, behold, he is calling Elias. So, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, this brings up something uh, maybe a little bit confusing. Our Lord Jesus Christ is God. This is God speaking, therefore, and how can God say to God, why have you abandoned me? Now, St. Thomas um, addressed this question, St. Thomas Aquinas, by explaining that there are five kinds of union between the Father and the Son, and one of these unions has to be broken in order to be able for our Lord to be able to, to say these words. So the first is the natural and eternal union, which is the essence of the Trinity. And this, of course, cannot be broken. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He has been from all eternity. He was God and he remains God. The second kind of union is the union of the human and divine nature in the person of the Word. Remember that our Lord Jesus Christ, again, being the second person of the Blessed Trinity, he has a divine nature to which he has united a human nature, a perfect human nature, in himself, all right, in the person of the word. So for you and I, there is a distinction between who we are and what we are. So if I say, who is that? Well, the answer might be, well, that's John. And if I say, what is that? Well, the answer is, that's a man. When we look at our Lord Jesus Christ, we say, who is that? And we can say, well, it's, it's Jesus or Christ or the word. It all comes down. There's the one person. But then I say, what is that? And the answer is, well, that's a man. But then I can say, well, wait a minute, what is that? And we can say, well, that is God. So there are two answers to the to the what question in the person of our Lord. For you and I, again, there's only one answer to, to the what question. We are human beings. But our Lord is a is a true man, but he's also a true God. And this union of the human nature and divine nature in the person of the word, this too cannot be broken. So it wasn't like um, somehow the divine nature abandoned the human nature. Remember that when someone speaks, it is the person that is speaking. So God is speaking these words, and so therefore the divine nature is present. The third kind of union is the, the union that our Lord has with God in the beatific vision. And this is commonly taught that our Lord from the first moment of his conception, he possessed the beatific vision in the highest portion of his soul. And theologians thought, well, maybe the beatific vision was taken away from him in order that his human nature might feel the full weight of desolation. And St. Thomas, um, he doesn't like that solution because he says, once we receive the beatific vision, it can't be taken away. We can't turn away from that, uh, that good once we, once we receive it. The fourth kind of union is the, the union of sanctifying grace, like like you and I, when we're in the state of grace. We have this union with God. We have a created participation um, in the divine nature, this created share of God's life within us by grace. And so some theologians, again, they said, well, maybe our Lord lost sanctifying grace when he hung on the cross in order to to be like those souls in mortal sin that lose God's grace. St. Thomas says, well, that doesn't work either because our Lord doesn't have sanctifying grace to begin with. Our Lord has rather what's called the grace of union, He possesses not a created share in the divine life, he possesses the divine life in its plenitude. And so the only kind of union that could be broken, St. Thomas comes to the conclusion, is that it's the fifth kind of union, which is the union of divine protection. And this divine protection is now, or has been, interrupted in order to allow the passion. Remember, there were many times when, when the, the men came to kill our Lord, and yet he passes through their midst, he is protected, he disappears, he escapes their grasp, because we're told his hour has not yet come. So the Father was protecting him. Now the Father has suspended, so to speak, his protection in order to allow the passion, and our Lord asked why. Now, the first lesson here might be a reminder that when we are crucified, when we suffer the cross, well, it's okay to ask why. And ultimately, the answer that we're going to receive is the same answer that we can say our Lord received. In fact, we just heard it recently in the Liturgy of Holy Week. And that is, St. Paul says that our Lord was obedient. He was obedient unto death, and he was obedient even unto the death of the cross. And for that reason, God gave him a name above every other name, a name before which every knee will bend, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. So our Lord asking the Father, why hast thou abandoned me? Why have you let me suffer this? The answer is simply so that I might crown you, that I might give you a name above every other, that I might crown you with the greatest glory of any man that ever lived. And we can say that the answer of our Father in heaven is going to be the same when we ask, why is the cross in my life? And the answer is precisely so that we can merit that much greater of a crown. For the fifth word, we will be going to John's gospel, chapter 19, verse 28. Afterwards, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now, this thirst that our Lord is enduring, obviously, we can start with the natural thirst that would be present. Remember that our Lord has been under arrest for the past, well, not quite 24 hours. He was arrested late the previous night. He's been in prison um, all night and all day. seriously doubt they were giving him anything to drink or any sort of sucker. Um, He has lost a great quantity of blood because of the scourging and because of the crucifixion. And this blood loss naturally provokes dehydration, which itself provokes a great thirst. Very often you hear soldiers on the battlefield that are dying, and they're, they're crying out precisely for water because of the blood loss. Now, beyond this natural explanation, there is certainly a spiritual explanation that we might give, and it is that our Lord thirsts to do the will of the Father. He thirsts for souls. And when our Lord Thirst, we're told that there was a a vessel there with uh, some sort of mixture uh, in it, a vinegar uh, kind of mixture, they put it on a reed and they put it to his lips to drink. And we are told that he tasted, but he refuses to drink. Now, this agony that our Lord is undergoing, this agony of thirst, we can see in it, our Lord expiating, atoning. For our sins of the tongue, be it the sins of, of gluttony or drunkenness or, you know, sins of uh, detraction or calumny. His taste is the only um, sense that hasn't suffered persecution. His ears have suffered, you know, a sense of hearing from listening to the, to the blasphemies and the cursing. His eyes have suffered seeing the suffering of his mother and the blindness of the high priest. His nose has suffered from the, you know, the stench of the jail and the jailers. His, um, touch obviously has suffered because of the scourgings and the crucifixion. But his taste has not yet, um, made reparation. He has not suffered there and he desires to do this. And this mixture that they give him to drink, it is, um, speculated that it was a kind of narcotic. It was a, a drink given to the condemned to sort of dull their senses. And we see that our Lord tastes this because it's a very bitty, a bitter, uh nasty, you know, taste. So he's got that vile taste in his mouth, but he refuses to drink because he's, he's not going to do anything to lessen his his sufferings, to dull his pain. He desires to suffer for us. And even if this fluid didn't have any sort of narcotic effect, if it was just simple vinegar, again, he would still have the bitterness but he would refuse to drink in order to, to slake his thirst because, again, he wants to suffer. He wants to demonstrate his love for you and I. The sixth word, John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus, therefore, when he had taken the vinegar, said, It is consummated. So, it is consummated. Our Lord says, It is consummated. And in essence, what he is saying is that it is completed. It is finished. All the prophecies have been fulfilled. All the suffering decreed has been endured. He has drunk the chalice um, of our salvation, the chalice of, of his passion to the dregs. He has manifested his extreme love for his father and for men, and it is consummated. Now, I find this uh, a beautiful choice of words, but... Before I mention it, when when was the last time you heard this word used in ordinary English conversation? It is consummated or consummated. It's not a word that we use very often unless, I mean, the only context I can really think of when we use it is when we refer to a wedding night. We say that the couple were married and that night they, they consummated their nuptials, they consummated their wedding. The consummation of a a marriage, of course, is the full flowering and the full expression of love between these two individuals. And so it's certainly a very fitting choice of words because the crucifixion is really the full flowering, the full expression of Christ's love for for you and I, for, for mankind. No greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for his friend. I remember in the seminary, being told that if we, if we want to understand the horror and how terrible really sin is, we should look at the crucifix, considering what it costs to repair sin, the death of a God. And on the other hand, though, when we really want to understand God's great love for man, for us, for your individual soul, we'll then look at the crucifix as well. We see here, his great love for us, laying down his life in in our stead. The seventh word, Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verse 44 to 46. And it was almost the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And saying this, he gave up the ghost. We should note that our Lord died when he willed to do it. Remember, he had said, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life for my sheep. And this last word of our Lord, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. Into thy hands, I I breathe forth my life. I, I surrender my life into thy hands, Father. I've always said that this last word of our Lord is really the only fitting response on our part to the sixth words and the whole life that went before it, when we consider all that he did for us, these these words are the only proper response we can make. He has given his life for us and we should give our life back to God. I've said before that this last word of our Lord needs to be the last word in my life. And by that, I don't mean that we we memorize this verse and then breathe it as we you know, say it as we breathe forth our last. But when I say it needs to be the last word in my life, I mean, it needs to be the guiding principle that I, that my life belongs to God, that I have surrendered this life that he gave me. Not only the life he gave me when he created me, but the life of his son that he gave for me, the life of his son that was laid down in my place. What return can I make to almighty God for all that he has done for me? This is the prayer that the priest says between his two communions at the Holy Mass. Remember, he receives the body of our Lord, and after having consumed it, as he's scraping the, the corporal with the patent, you know, gathering up any particles, lest they be lost, he's brushing those into the chalice, and he is saying, what return will I make to God for all that he has done for me? And the, the prayer continues, I will take the chalice of salvation, as he grabs the, the cup, the chalice, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And in my first mass, the assistant priest who preached there, he asked, you know, now that you are a priest, what return are you going to make for God, to God for everything that he's done for you? And he said, you're going to take up the chalice of salvation. But then he went on to say, but what is this chalice of salvation? This chalice is nothing other than the chalice that our Lord prayed would pass him by in the garden. It is the cross, that our daily cross, that the Father wills for us. Remember our Lord said, If any man love me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. This is the only fitting response that you and I can make for everything that he's done for us. To take up our cross and to follow him. This is our lot as Christians. Let us beg of him, calling upon the name of the Lord, let us beg of him the grace to do that and know that with the crosses that come to us, God sends the proportionate graces we need to carry each and every one. So we've covered quite a bit of ground here. I've gone rather quickly. This, this conference normally is about an hour long during the retreat. I encourage you to go back these over these seven words very slowly. Ponder each one in your heart. Reflect on the application for your own life. And try as best you can to see what lesson and message this last word these last words of our Lord have for you in your own life. Take care and God bless you.